is Friday, July 28th, 2017. Time for episode 15 of the Barnhart Podcast. Yes, Malcolm, we're back. Despite the longer than typical time since our last podcast, we are still doing this weekly and ready to, to address some topics. But first, happy feast day, Anne. Why, thank you. The Feast of St. Anne was indeed on Wednesday of this week, and I was able to have an absolutely lovely dinner and celebration. And um, also one of the reasons why, you know, Super Nerd and I have both been very busy this week. There's been a dearth of posts on the website for me. Terrible. Um, I did go on, I was able to go on another pilgrimage this week, which was very spiritually profitable, and I'm, I'm very grateful to God that I was able to to do that particular pilgrimage that I did earlier this week. But now I think both of us, um, speaking for you, knowing that you had an extremely busy week as well, Super Nerd, I think both of us are kind of settling back down and and things should pick back up again. So even though this is a Friday, this is not a financial Friday. Um, this is just a this is just a regular episode, as you could tell by the theme music. Right. No, uh, no money themes this, this week. And, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that again next week, probably. And, uh, we've got some plenty of email from, from the, oh, yeah. the first episode. And, uh, we got plenty of topics lined up for that one, too. Speaking of email feedback, we got an email from Big Scary Steve. Do you want to do that one now? Yeah, absolutely. We should start with that right okay. away. Okay. Dear Miss Barnhart, I would like to respond to your comment in episode 13. You say that getting to heaven is so easy. All one needs to do is go to confession. I disagree that it is that easy. The reason I say this is that without a firm purpose of amendment, confession is useless. That is why so many people avoid confession. They know they aren't serious about giving up their sin. Many other people go to confession either ignorant of this or thinking that they have a firm purpose of amendment when they really don't. Even if the priest gives you a penance and you do it, it's worthless unless you give up the sin. Habitual sin is a big problem and the church does not address it properly. There's, there's a joke we made there about being more Catholic than the Pope, but that's not really a joke anymore. I'll continue. Well, <laughs> I could say something, but I'll, I'll yeah. bite my tongue. Proceed, sir. Yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> Too many people make a faulty examination of conscience. I've heard people speak approvingly of St. Padre Pio sending people away from the confession, telling them that they weren't sorry enough. Oh, that's a special case. He has special abilities. Okay, I'll go on. Every mm-hmm. priest should be doing this. Yes, every priest should be able to see the soul of the penitent. Well, would P- it work? Yeah, really. St. Pio should not be the exception. <laughs> I'm kind of uh, spoiling this point. Uh, and, and, and thereafter, these people take communion thinking that they have been absolved from sin and they're still in mortal sin. Thus, they eat and drink damnation to themselves. And he cites Corinthians in saying that. Their mm-hmm. faith is useless and akin to diabolical narcissism. That's kind of a—we we, we kind of interjected a few thoughts here. Um, how would you respond to Steve here? Well, I want to thank— I want to thank him for this email, because I think what this sets up is a point of departure for, in episode 13, as as he said, I made the point that it's so easy. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can, you can commit horrific, horrific mortal sins. And you don't have to, for example, uh, let me think of some sort of a absolutely bizarre, strange example. You don't have to sever your left arm. Or, um, I don't know, can you think of some, or like, like the musloid thought process that you have to go blow yourself up in a, in a suicide attack or something in order to get right with God. But what Big Scary Steve brings up is the, the other bookend to this. So now I really like that we're going to have this topic bookended on both sides in both podcast 13 and now podcast 15, 
he his point is absolutely correct. And it's such a wonderful point of departure for a very good and profitable discussion. You have to be sorry. You have to be sorry. And if you if you go into the confessional and you're you're really not sorry, and that doesn't mean necessarily that you're just, you know, it, it you, one has to be careful about feelings, you know, and 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 so on and so forth. You don't have to be d- doubled over in in paralyzing, crippling physical pain, that that level of sorrow. That level of sorrow is good. And actually, as we're going to continue to discuss, one should be looking to to almost cultivate that. And we're going to the exemplar of this is we're going to look at at St. Mary Magdalene, whose feast was earlier um, within the last week as well. She is kind of the exemplar for this. And we'll get into that for a moment. You have to be sorry for what you've done and you have to have a firm purpose of amendment. Now, what that does not mean is that if if you go into the confessional and you confess a sin and then at some point in the future you fall again and you commit that sin that, you know, just everything's invalid, da, 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 da. I mean, it, there, there is the expectation, and we know this from the, from the stations of the cross. Are, there are three stations of the cross of our Lord falling under his cross as he walks carrying his cross to Calvary. And what those falls are is us falling back into sin. Now, this is a nuanced point, but I don't think it's terribly difficult to understand. You shouldn't you should want to stop. You should want to never sin again. But then you should also have the understanding that if if I do fall again, if I do slip up again at some point in the future, Christ is still available to me. It's not a, a one strike and you're out situation. OK, you can keep going back, but you have to actually want to stop committing the sin. You have to realize it's bad. You have to recognize that it's a sin. You have to recognize that it's hurting Christ when you do this. It's hurting him in the sense, in his human nature, in the sense that he loves you infinitely. And when you see somebody doing something that is that is harmful to themselves, and when we commit sin, that's that's what it is. We are hurting ourselves because we are we are withdrawing and removing ourselves from Christ. We're turning our back on him when we sin. And the, the where that eventually ends, if it isn't fixed, is hell, which is without a doubt the worst possible thing that can happen to a human being. It's not even close. It's an infinite set, infinite damnation. So if you're doing something that is self-destructive, God loves us infinitely. Therefore, he, he we are hurting him by doing this. Then you put on top of that the fact that he he suffered and died for our sins, his agony in the garden, his his passion, his going to the cross, bleeding out completely this total infinite sacrifice of love so that we could reconcile with him and be saved. It is psychopathic to think that if you have even the most cursory understanding of this, and if you have even the slightest capability to love and to understand what love is, that you could just shrug your shoulders at that and and and, and transform this into a 
a, a purely legalistic paradigm. That is exactly what the post-conciliar church, the Freemasonic infiltration, the infiltration of the sodomites, that's exactly what they're trying to build. They are trying to make it into a purely legalistic paradigm. It's also, and I've written about this at length, in terms of my conversion, one of the, you know, I call myself a Kennedy convert because I kept reading and reading and reading apologetics, patristics, you know, all of this, all of this stuff about the truth of the Catholic faith. And it's obviously extraordinarily compelling and everything is internally consistent and it's extremely attractive. But then why did I hesitate for years and years and years entering the church? Because of the scandal of people like the Kennedys. So, and this is a very common critique that Protestants, especially Protestants in the central U.S. and the Bible Belt, the kind of people that I'm, I've been around my entire life, and not necessarily the milieu I grew up in, because the milieu I grew up in, personally, on a micro level, was much more liberal. It was liberal Protestant, United Church of Christ, and all that garbage. But in terms of the Bible Belt, being in the cattle business, et cetera, et cetera, um, the critique that is made, and it is absolutely valid, and it is a scandal, is that, oh, here are all these Catholics, and they go out and they commit all these sins. You know, it's get uh, party, get drunk, have sex, fornicate on Saturday night, and then Sunday morning, all you do is you go crawl, and you go into the confessional, and you babble a few prayers, and it's all good. And then then you're dishonest in your business dealings during the week, you're a a drunk, you're a fornicator, yada, yada, yada. Oh, just as long as you can go babble some prayers in the confessional, it's all good. This is an extraordinarily valid critique. It is scandal. It is scandal the way Catholics have become lukewarm, carried on in this in this extremely legalistic, evil mindset that and it's it, it's it's weird because it's Protestants making this critique. But what you keep getting back to in all of this is almost kind of a Lutheran mentality that you know, we're all just piles of shit. That's what, that's what Luther's uh, base premise was. Literally. You know, we're all just literally, we are, we are piles of shit and Christ's death on the cross is like a blanket of snow that then he drapes over us, but we remain piles of shit forever. And so you are a pile of shit existentially, according to Luther. Therefore, there is absolutely no reason why you should even bother trying to be anything other than a pile of shit. You, and all you, all you can do is, is have faith that Christ will throw this blanket of snow over you. Therefore, not only should you not even worry about trying to to live a good moral life or trying to not be a pile of shit. You should sin boldly. You should sin boldly to prove how much faith you have. And and reveling and and you know persisting in your sin is almost then it, this is satanic. It's a sign of how much faith you have. The fact that you you aren't sorry, you just keep going, shrug your shoulders. It's weird how it, it's like the political spectrum, where if you go far enough to the left and far enough to the right, it it's almost it turns into a donut, and the the two sides hook up. It's the same thing here. 
you go you go far enough to one side and far enough to the other and eventually you know the catholics and the lutherans actually end up meeting up somewhere in this whole just shrug your shoulders and sin boldly but but that is why people are looking at anti-pope bergoglio and more and more people especially theologians are looking at what he's doing looking at this this agenda and they're saying dude this guy this guy is clearly a lutheran you just you keep listening to this and it's clear that he's fully on board with the Lutheran heresy. And that's why he's celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran revolt. That's why there's talk, there's talk that there's going to be some action taken to even attempt to um, declare Luther a saint or something like this. I mean, it, 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 this is not a coincidence. So, you know, trying to get back at, on track with my notes here as I glance at my notes, I've written extensively about this, but a lot of people, they think it's better when they hear things spoken verbally. So we'll just go over this very quickly. First of all, shame is is a gift. It's a grace from God. And again, what these people keep trying to tell people is not only should they not be ashamed of any of their sin, you know, you should... Mercy means never, not only not having to say you're sorry, but not even having to be sorry. That's the lie. That's the lie. That's what Francis mercy is supposed to be. You don't have to say you're sorry. You don't even have to be sorry. And you can keep doing the thing that you're doing. And mercy, completely devoid of justice, completely devoid of truth, completely devoid of love, completely devoid of fear of the Lord. Mercy, mercy, mercy is this is this cardinal virtue, but it's a false mercy. Never have to say sorry, never have to be sorry. And, you know, it's there's a reason why shame is is the fruit of the first sorrowful mystery. The first sorrowful mystery of the rosary is our Lord's agony in the garden. The fruit of that mystery, when you're praying that you should be thinking about sorrow for sin, not just your own sins, the sins of your past life but also to a certain extent the sins of the world and you know the desire for first of all the sins of the world to stop because you 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 don't want Christ to be tortured and flagellated and crucified any more than he already has been and every time someone commits sin that's what it is so sorrow for your own sins sorrow for the sins of the world a desire that these sins be stopped we and not only that, but we should desire an increase, an ever growing increase as long as we as we are in this world, an increase in the shame and sorrow that we feel for the sins even of our past life. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing as you especially for any of those people out there who are converts. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are converts or are thinking about converting. One of the things that happens as you spend more and more time in the church and, and you progress in, in the spiritual walk, if we can call it that, is you start looking back at your life and realizing things that you did in your past life before you converted, or even maybe after you converted too realizing how horrible these things were. And at the time, you didn't even, maybe you didn't even realize they were sins. 
Maybe you didn't even know, but you know what? We are not the arbiters of what is or is not sin. Even if you do something and it is a sin and you don't realize it, it's still a sin and it's still an infinite offense against God. Now, there can be a a nuanced discussion here about personal culpability if a person is genuinely ignorant, genuinely ignorant that something that they did was a, was a sin, then of course, you know, God in his mercy, he takes that into account, certainly. But the fact, the objective fact that the sin is still a sin, that that remains. And so you can look back at your past life and look at things that you did and realize how terrible it was. And that's a really good thing that as you move forward in your life, and hopefully as you keep moving closer and closer to God, which in theory you should do up until the moment of your death, you should always be moving closer to him. Shame and sorrow for sin should increase and increase and increase. Um, So for example, um, there are people who, Catholics and and non-Catholics who, either didn't realize or weren't or were explicitly told that, for example, contracepting, there were there are lots and lots and lots of Catholics who have been told since uh, the asteroid hit, since Vatican II, they were told by priests that contraception was not a sin. They were assured of this. And um, they went ahead and they contracepted throughout their fertile lives. And then they became mature adults for whatever reason. You know, they were drawn closer to God and they learned the truth and they learned that they had been lied to. And they they then realized God wanted to give us all of these children. And we thwarted that by our sin of contracepting. And now they have this shame and they have this sorrow for sin. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. So they are able to um, be penitent for these sins of their earlier married lives and so forth. This is a wonderful thing. Are are we honestly going to argue that these people should be kept in the dark about this and that they shouldn't be able to tell God that they're sorry for their sins before the moment of their death? How much better is it for them? if they're able in this life before they die to go into the confessional, to engage the sacrament of confession and to be able to make a good confession for these things. Are we honestly going to argue that it's just better for them not to know? Um, Could they, could they still get through their, their particular judgment? We can't know that for sure one way or the other, but it seems to me that, you know, Invincible ignorance is just not on the table here. And the fact and what it it, what is always interesting to me is that when these people say, well, I went to the priest and asked him if if this was okay, if that was okay, the fact that you went to a priest and asked in the first place indicated that there was a question in your mind. Therefore, you can't argue that you were completely ignorant of what the church's teaching was. Um, now talking about, let's let's talk about Protestants. Protestants who argue, well, I didn't know that getting divorced and remarried was a sin. You know, my church with a lowercase c, that they said this was absolutely no problem. Well, I'm sorry, but you have the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ right there in the gospel in, Ma- in Matthew 19. And unlike about, Catholics, as, unlike Catholics, Protestants actually read their Bible. Hey, hey, I didn't want to say it, but super nerd can say it because he's he was he was born in, you know, but it's 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 absolutely true. You know, Protestants actually 
actually know the Bible, and there it is right there. And we, we all know the words. We can all recite them. Let those whom God has joined together, let those whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Everybody's heard those in every, you know, every wedding you've ever been to, every depiction of a wedding in a in a motion picture on TV. And we all know those words and they're they're extraordinarily clear. And, you know, also his words that a man who divorces his wife or puts away his wife and marries another the husband is committing adultery, the second wife is committing. I mean, this is crystal, crystal clear. How, how is it that you can argue that you're invincibly ignorant of this? Well, the people at my church told me that it wasn't a problem. Well, at some point, you have to use your brain. And, you know, here's God Almighty saying one thing. And here's, you know, Pastor Brad at Superfund Rock Band Church saying the exact diametrical opposite. Don't you think you should sit down and use your intellect to weigh um, who who you're going to listen to? Is it going to be God Almighty or is it going to be Pastor Brad at Superfund Rock Band Church? But as we all know, because of fallen human nature, there is nothing more attractive, nothing more attractive to a human being than to be ratified in their sin. And people remember this, even even outside of modern culture, the 36 hour news cycle, the five second attention span on all of our smartphones and devices. Oh, people still remember for the rest of their lives when somebody ratifies them in their sin. Which the, the, that sort of gets to a point that Steve mentions in, the, in his email uh, about people not being sorry enough. Um, being engaged at the level of emotions, yes, that's something you're going to remember a long time because it strikes at the core of, of our mm-hmm. concupiscible nature. Mm-hmm. Um, nice $5 word we should explain at some point. But uh, yeah. the, the, the idea of being sorry fundamentally is in, in the act of the will. You have to be... You have to will not to do this again. That is the right. beginning of the sorrow. It is a rare grace to actually be moved to tears over your own sins. And I, I had a chance to ex- not personally experience this once, but on a, on a uh, five-day Ignatian retreat, it was one of these things where you're, you know, it, it's a five-day silent retreat, and I forget what I was working on exactly, um, some spiritual reading. And all of a sudden, I hear this wailing cry com- coming from down the hallway, and if my first thought was, well, this is annoying. I'm trying to concentrate. And then I realized what it was. Like, oh, wow. How yeah. how how much of a wretch am I that I haven't even thought to ask for that grace yet? And, right, and right. It, it's, it's, it's a grace that if you really want it, you will get it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to want it. And and mm-hmm. that's not being, literally being able to cry for your sins. It's not something that comes from emotion. This is something that comes from ultimately from the will, from from the mind. You have to... You know, meditate on the crucifixion and realize that all of those tortures Christ went through, he would have done just for you. If if Adam and Eve had not fallen and human race had not fallen except for you, Christ would have taken flesh and been crucified, even if you were the one who had to pound the nails into him because nobody else um, had had fallen and and, uh, needed to have uh, redemption. He would have done the whole thing just for you. That's right. And beyond that, speaking about going to mass, he would do it. He would do it just for you. And he would do it over and over and over again. And, you know, uh, saints have said he would do it for you as many times as you assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass. Now, obviously, I think we, we could probably say that he would do it for you 
an infinite amount of times because inf infinite love means infinite love. But I think it's a point that the saints and doctors of the church have made in how important and how salutary it is to go to mass and to assist at mass and how incredibly important this is. He would go through the whole thing just for you as many times in your life as you go to mass. And that's why we go to mass. That's why we are obliged to go to mass on Sunday, because if he's willing to do that for you, you're obliged to go. And that's why if you possibly can, and if you can so arrange your life, you need to arrange your life in such a way and then get your backside out of bed and go to mass every day if you possibly, possibly can, because you're engaging that infinite love and it and it makes you understand these things and it, it allows you to progress and uh, to reform your life, genuinely reform your life and feel sorry for your sins and these things. So now back to the modern church, um, such as it is, what, what the thrust of this Freemasonic agenda is, is that there's two things. First of all, sins aren't sins. So Amoris Laetitia, you know, it's just, it's just trying to say, no, 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 no. Divorce and remarriage isn't a sin. That's basically the thrust of, of especially the chapter eight. It's not, it's not a sin. Um, you're not, you're not responsible for it. If you've been doing something for a long time, I think at some point it makes the point that if you've been committing a sin habitually, that it can, your culpability can become re reduced or even completely eliminated. Um, that, so the, 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 the proof that this is just a satanic document is when it says that God wills people to continue in sin because, you know, that's, that's the best possible path forward. And so God actively wills people to continue in mortal sin. That, this is this is satanic. So it's saying your sins aren't sins, but even even beyond that, it's getting to that Lutheran crux that we were talking about earlier that your sins actually don't matter. It just doesn't matter. It's too hard. This is another point that that the the anti-papacy of Bergoglio and all of these these heretics that they keep trying to make is that, it is too difficult for a person to live according to the law. That's why they keep railing and raging against law. It's too difficult for you to not live it, it committing horrific sins. So at that point, it just doesn't even matter. This is Lutheranism to the hilt. And so what they're saying, you know, is... But like I said, they're railing against the law qua law. And that's why they're always calling us names like doctors of the law and lovers of the law and rigid and so forth. And what they're completely discounting is the notion of grace. God can and will provide the grace to anyone who seeks it to live a life not in sin. We are given the strength through grace to be able to live our lives and not sin and to argue otherwise is to is to not be Christian on any level whatsoever. 
it is possible. It is possible to not sin. It is possible to not have gay sex. It is possible to not um, to not live in adultery with a with a faux second spouse. All of these things are possible. You can live your life not in mortal sin. God's grace will provide. God will provide you that grace. There, the anti-pope is telling people that it's not possible and you shouldn't even bother asking because it's not possible. Here, I, I, anti-pope Bergoglio, I am even greater than Christ. I will give you a new mercy that says your sins aren't sins. It doesn't even matter. Don't worry about it. You're a pile of shit. Just keep going. And I will, I will drape my blanket, my blanket of my Francis mercy over you. And, you know, just, just don't even bother. Just don't even bother trying. That's why these people are so satanic. And also that's why they're so wildly popular. His approval ratings all over the Western world are extremely high. Nobody's coming back to the church. Nobody is reverting to Catholicism. Nobody's going to confession. There's nobody, nobody is, is being attracted to the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church because of this man, but he is personally popular because he's telling them what they want to hear. He's tickling their ears. He is ratifying them in their sins. He's telling them that they've been right all along, that, that the, these people who have been telling them that their sins are sins and, and so forth, those people have been wrong. And for a large number of these people, all of these fallen away apostatized Catholics, because, you know, 90% of Catholics for all intents and purposes since um, the asteroid, the second Va- the failed Second Vatican Council, the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Mass, basically in excess of 90% of Catholics in the West have uh, effectively apostatized. What what anti-Pope Bergoglio and all of this false mercy crap that he's spewing, what he's saying to those people is, wink, wink, you were right. This this is this Catholic crap. This is all bullshit. And you you were right to leave. And your life has been better because you left because you weren't shackled with guilt or shame and because you didn't have all of these laws that are impossible to follow hanging over you. And, and frankly, I mean, you know, if, if we're going to have an honest conversation here, you know, between you, me and, and the wall, as we're standing here sipping our cocktails and being honest with each other, it's all bullshit anyway. And you were right to leave. I, I don't believe any of it. And I, I'm the Pope. I'm the Pope, and I don't believe any of it. Of course, he's not the Pope, but I'm, I'm using his voice. I'm the Pope, and I don't even believe any of that shit. So you know, you know that you were right, and you were right to leave. Which gets into a tangential and, topic also about denying or, or not, not studying Thomism. St. Thomas uh, is the one who has the line that grace perfects nature, and he's only building on St. Paul in, in the epistles, talking about how it is not I who live anymore, but Christ who lives in me. And uh, if you want to look that up in the Summa, it's it's the first part of the first part, uh, Article 8, and he references St. Paul several times, not that particular quote, but uh, to deny that we don't have the ability to actually follow the laws that God gives us. It, well, first yeah. off, you're denying grace as, as you're understanding—the proper understanding of grace. Yeah. And you're, you're denying a whole bunch of things, really, but you're, you're, you're essentially denying the supernatural aspect of grace. You might as well say that Jesus isn't God. 
That's right. That's exactly that. Well, that is ultimately where all of these things lead. All of these heresies, all of these lies, when you start from a, a false based premise, any of these things, if you take enough logical steps where every single one of these things leads, where Lutheranism leads, where all Protestantism leads, is atheism. It all leads to atheism. That is the logical conclusion of all of this. And that's what they want. Because remember, ultimately, this is Freemasonic, which is ultimately satanic. And so, I mean, the ultimate way to make sure that a person does not achieve the beatific vision is for them to deny that God exists at all. I mean, you know, Satan doesn't deny that God exists, obviously, because Satan knows that God exists. But... uh, I guess one of the ultimate victories is to get a human being to even deny that he exists. And that's where all of these heresies lead. So now I want to kind of pivot on this into the idea of shame in terms of existing in human, in healthy human culture and society and, and people shaming other people this is something that, you know, for most of us now who have been who were born in the second half of the 20th century, we've almost lived we've lived almost our entire lives in a culture in which any sort of shaming other people for open public sins is it has been considered just one of the the cardinal sins and an act now. What's the buzzword? It's an act of hate. That's what they say. You're a hater, et cetera, et cetera. The very same people who will shame you for using a styrofoam cup for coffee instead of cardboard, but go on. Yes, exactly. So the point I want to make here and remind everybody is that in a, you know, for those of, for those of you who will survive (laughs) the triumph of the immaculate heart or whatever it is that's going to happen, and you're going to be tasked with rebuilding, rebuilding civilization. um, This is actually a function of subsidiarity. The human beings in in a healthy society should shame other people who are committing open, flagrant public sins. Um, Christian culture self-polices and self-corrects. So handling of misbehavior should ideally occur on the family level or the neighborhood level. So what we're talking about in terms of su- subsidiarity is um, the, the, the lowest, broadest possible level. And even beyond that, you know, it just occurred to me that there's another level that's even, that's even lower and broader than that. And that is the individual themselves. We should feel shame. And when we feel shame, it should prevent us from committing a sin. You know, you're 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 in a situation in real time. You have a choice in front of you to sin or not to sin. Just the thought internally of you committing a sin and the shame that you would feel if you committed that sin, that should be the first level of self-policing um, that that would hold you back. Now, then, if you make the wrong decision and you commit a sin, then ideally, you know, people around you, your family, your friends, your neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. That's where this this should all start. And it's a good, healthy thing. And one of the reasons why you look around and our society has gone to hell in a handbasket is because people stopped shaming other people. 
And this entire notion of a culture and a society self-policing just just nosedived. And so that's why, for example, you know, it's summertime and I, I go outside and I walk to mass and I, you know, I don't live out in the country. I'm I live somewhere where I have to walk through um urban environs, not super urban, but urban environs. And you see people walking around and you see women and girls walking around and they're wearing shorts here in, in July, in the heat of the summer that are so short. They're like denim shorts, you know, like Daisy Duke denim shorts, but they're so short that their butt cheeks are hanging down out the bottom of the shorts. And I mean, it's just, it's first of all, it looks like hell. Obviously, they look like cows. But even the ones who who are in the the best shape in the world, just it it's so foul and it's so disgusting. And yet, why is this going on? Why do we have this culture in which women walk around basically naked? Why do why is this crap going on? Why do men dress like slobs? I mean, a lot of it's men tend to be more covered. You know, they're not they're not walking around with their genitals hanging out, but they, they just look like slobs. Why? Why is this bad behavior going on? It's because people stopped shaming other people. Can I interject um, for a second? Yeah. The aside from being a commentary on on American diets and and body types, I, I do want to point out that that shaming still exists. It's just not being done in the moral aspect. And and the reason right. why it is so automatic in human nature to want to shame somebody, whether it's I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard the term body shaming, uh, certainly yes. um, eco shaming. Uh, any professional sense, okay, I'm a computer programmer. We have the idea of an anti-pattern, something that you're, you'd be you'd be dumb to do this. You could get fired for doing uh, writing code a bad uh, in a certain way. You certainly mm-hmm. get shamed for it professionally. Um, mm-hmm. in, in a in a less serious sense, you you have these this crazy idea these these days called the man code. And, and if you violate the man code, you should be shamed and and other stupid things like party foul. This is an extension of the fact that there is a realization at an in, at an innate sense that we have a conscience. This is something every human being has, and you cannot turn it off. So mm-hmm. it, you're doing violence to yourself, really, to turn off the ability to shame somebody either that or you really just don't be, you don't believe the stuff anyway so to say that that um, we don't shame anyone anymore I, I, I'd say it's actually worse than that we have lost our ability to shame at a moral level because we don't but we don't believe it and we have perverted our, our own morality to a certain point that we well, can't there shame you go. Anyone. Good is good is evil and evil is good. So there's two things at work here. There's the inversion of good and evil. So people are shamed for not embracing and ratifying sodomy, for example. Um, and then the other way around, if you go down the street and you tell some some girl, oh, here's another example. I saw a girl the other day wearing a pair of denim cut off booty shorts with her with her butt hanging out. But on the front of these shorts, you know where the pockets would be where, you know, just like on a pair of pants, there's two pockets, one on each side, one on the right, one on the left. That was all completely cut out. And what it and what it showed is that she wasn't wearing any underwear so that the only part of her that was covered in the front was her, for lack of a better word, her direct pubic area. And the rest of it was all cut away and exposed skin. And then the back of these booty shorts, super, super high cut with her butt hanging out the bottom. OK, why? Why doesn't anyone 
say anything? Why doesn't anyone correct him? Because we've inverted good and evil, but also effeminacy. That's where we're going. That's the other point in all this. Effeminacy is such that nobody wants to Nobody can be bothered. Nobody wants to take the risk. Nobody wants to stand up and act with virility and potency and do anything about any of this. Or they think to themselves, well, it's not my job. That's not my circus, not my monkeys, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody else needs to say something. But see, nobody else is going to say anything because your government is completely corrupt. Your your government is never going to enforce any of these standards or anything like that. And yes, you should want your government to have decency standards and anti-obscenity standards and anti-public nudity standards. And to, to say that and acknowledge that is not to be the gosh darn Taliban. That's what they'll try to tell you. They'll try to tell you that if you think that there should be any public standards of morality or anti-obscenity or anything like that, well, you're the Taliban. Well, see, Satan is a very good chess player, isn't he? That's why things like the Taliban exist, so that Satan can put that, you know, that rook in the corner of the chessboard and, you know, cover cover all of those squares and all of those angles. So if anyone says anything, they say, oh, shut up, you're the Taliban. Well, no, I'm not the Taliban. There should be levels of morality in public and anti-obscenity. So you've got the inversion of good and evil, coupled with this intense effeminacy in the post-Christian world. And that's why none of these things are, are ever corrected. Now, here's what's interesting. Speaking about government and Taliban and things like that, you see, here's what's interesting. And this, again, goes back to subsidiarity. Most crimes or sins do not require legislation they do not require police action. They do not require any government action at all. Most of these things, and if you just look back at our culture up until 50, 60 years ago, almost all of this stuff was just taken care of by the society itself. There weren't any laws on the books, you know, 150 years ago explicitly stating that there should not be um, homosexual pornography displayed on public uh, in on public spaces. Does that does that mean that 150 years ago everyone was cool with gay porn being being displayed publicly? Of course not. It means that's something that was just so it just goes without saying that that is so acceptable. And if anyone ever dared dared attempt to do something like that. The, 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 the surrounding community would take care of it instantly. They would take care of it instantly and with probably a, a very high level of physical intensity. These things almost didn't even have to be said. Um, you'll, you'll note that in Scripture, there's no specific prohibition about having sex with prepubescent children. Why is that? Because it's so evil, it goes without saying. And if anyone was caught doing that, then the, the community, the surrounding community, would see justice done swiftly and with great intensity. You, you don't even have to engage the state for a lot of these things. You don't have to engage the police. So there, you know, I know there are a lot of people who listen, who are in my audience, who are kind of on this this far right uh, advocating anarchy. No, no, you see, there's a, you're, you're missing it. You're, you're, you're missing the point. In a healthy Christian society, 
these things are taken care of on this these extremely low levels of subsidiarity but that that doesn't mean anarchy it doesn't mean you don't have a state you don't have a government you do need a government for certain functions and so forth specifically large macro scale functions like uh, border control um, defense obviously things like that um, but for these for these moral issues if you have a, a Christian society subsidiarity takes care of all this so there doesn't need to be any state engagement and there shouldn't be any state engagement because the people themselves take care of it so here's here's a good example um, and this this is extremely politically incorrect so this is maybe if this one I think if this podcasted if we were still putting them up on YouTube you, YouTube would have banned me for what I'm about to say so let's talk about this explosion in faggotry in our in our society in post-western post-christian society all these little boys now are you know deciding either when they hit puberty or even before they hit puberty due to this vampiric infection and and propagandizing of of the faggot lifestyle there's this percentage explosion in how many boys are are turning into faggots here's the way this used to work when a boy would for example go to school and a, and a little boy would act like a sissy little fag. When a boy would act like a girl, he'd get his ass kicked. The other boys around him would kick his ass. This is a form of this self-policing. I was once told a story um, about a, a, an adult male sodomite who started acting out, who started acting gay when he was, when he was a kid, uh, you know, prepubescent, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, he kind of started acting gay. And one day as he was walking home from school, a bunch of boys from the school kicked his ass. And so he, he got home and he went into, his father had a store and he went into his father's store, you know, crying and moaning and, and, you know, th those boys just beat me up. And his father went out and screamed at those boys and was using the F word and, you know, blankety blank this, if you ever touch my boy again, I'm going to kick your ass and blah, 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 blah. And of course, this boy grew up into being just an absolutely wretched sodomite. What the, and the fault here lies with the father. You know what the father should have done? The father should have gone out, looked at those boys and said, thanks for doing that. I'll make a deal with you. When he acts like a sissy little fag at home, I'll, I'll knock him upside the head. And if he if he dares act like that at school, I want you guys to do the same. Do, do you excuse me, sir? Do you love your son? Do you love your son? If you love your son, then if he acts like a faggot, you need to do anything, including corporal punishment, to make him stop acting like a faggot. If, if, he, if you can't talk reason to him, if you can't shame him saying, why are you acting like a girl? Quit acting like that. If you if he won't do that, then then corporal punishment needs to come into the equation. The boys who beat the faggoty little boy up at school were actually 
fulfilling this subsidiary, this role of subsidiarity, wherein the culture polices itself, and it even does that among children. Why do you think that the the incidence of male homosexuality in the Christian West up until just, you know, a few decades ago, why do you think the incidence of this was relatively low? I mean, you know, they've been saying 3%. I think it's far, far, far less than 1%, you know, before the middle of the 20th century and everything just went to hell. The incidence of, of sodomy was very, very low because there was a policing structure within the society itself, even amongst children, even amongst children. You act like you get this idea in your mind, little boy, that, you, that you're going to get attention and you're going to stand out by acting like a girl. All right, get ready to get your ass kicked because you deserve it. The reason why we're doing this is so that you do not descend into this narcissistic life of just un- un- incomprehensible, grave, mortal sin that leads only to hell. It's for your own good. We can't even talk about this. We can't we can't have a discussion about this. Again, going back to what Super Nerd said about the culture being inverted. Right is wrong, wrong is right, evil is good, good is bad. Now a little boy acts like a faggot and he's a hero. He's a hero, he's coddled, he's supported, he's certainly encouraged. This is this is it right here. This is a function. He's defended. We have legal structures to defend him. Now you have children who announce that they want to cut off their genitals. Well, you you have to allow this. You have to. We have to have the state pay for this. We have to codify this in law. We have to let the little boy who wants to cut his own dick off go in the bathroom with the girls. And if you don't do this, you're a hater. You're a terrible, horrible person. Why? Because you're taking and removing shame. You're not allowed to shame. The only thing you can shame somebody for is for being a believing Christian and for adhering to the truth with a capital T. It's, it's, it's terrifying to watch it, but people need to put these pieces together and realize what's going on. Um, so I have one more example. I've written about it, and I'll just repeat it very, very quickly. Uh, about oh, I was a teenager, so... 20, 25 years ago, where I grew up in, in Kansas, the, um, they would have things called threshing bees, where they would get together and they would have old farm machinery, steam engines, things like that. And there was usually like a, 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 like a county fair, a fairway, and they would have tractor pulls and, you know, uh, horse pulls and things like that. And it was just a, a fun activity in the late summer that people would go to. So I went to this one year and we were sitting there and we were watching the tractor pulls and the horse pulls. And as we're all sitting there in, in this very family event, there's kids running around all over the place. It's just family you know, family event, this, this trashy white guy drunk off his ass gets up and starts just screaming the F word and saying the filthiest, filthiest, obscene things. And what happened is as we were sitting there and this starts, this goes on for, you know, five, seven seconds, just spontaneously, six men, who were sitting around this area where this drunk was screaming, six men who did not know each other stood up. They all walked down to where the guy was. They surrounded him and they looked at him and they, they said, you are going to leave and you're going to shut your mouth 
and you're going to do it right now. And if you don't, we will physically remove you and we will physically shut your mouth for you. They didn't go and run and get the cops. There, there was just no need for that. Now, this is 25 years ago. So we're still and this is in rural, rural Kansas. So we're still on the tail end of some sort of a notion of a Christian culture. And men, there was still some masculine virility present in the culture, especially given the, the location and the time. And so they took care of this problem. They self-policed. This would not happen today. I'm, I'm convinced that this would not happen today. Maybe someone would run off and try to find a cop. And then, and then now today the cops are, are, are terrified of, of trying to do anything about things like this. But this notion of self-policing, people used to, men especially, men used to take care of this all the time. Things like that used to happen all the time. And now between the effeminacy and the more inversion it just never happens I would imagine today if you once you get a hold of the police they're gonna say oh do you need a grief counselor yeah exactly or, or you know he or the drunk is going to sue you for trying to impinge on his constitutional I mean it's just you can't even to this at this point it's so far gone you can't even make this stuff up it's so insane you know 25 years ago you couldn't have made something like that up and now it's that's what happens people people are sued P litigation is is the preferred method for a lot of these people to try to shut down the notion of shame in our society. Um, so novisordoism and e even conservative novisordoism is full in on this agenda. And it, it's about this this business of eliminating the entire notion of shame or guilt. And, you know, I was remembered as I was writing, as I was writing my, my notes for this, if you go to the old mass and you say the confitier and you say that you say the confitier twice, you say the confitier at the very beginning of the mass at the prayers of the foot of the altar. And then the confitier is repeated right before the distribution of Holy communion. So that, you know, if you've been sitting there kneeling at mass, having terrible, angry, unchristian, uncharitable thoughts, and you, you need to make an act, of, uh, an act of contrition again before you receive the Eucharist. The church provides you for the, to do that. But what, what do you say? You say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It's my fault. It's my fault. It's my most grievous fault. And I, something that I've noticed, and it's a function of this whole diabolical narcissism invading our culture. Have you noticed that when people apologize, they're not really apologizing anymore? Have you noticed that when apologies come, almost always it says something to the effect, I'm sorry if you were hurt. I'm sorry if you were offended. Th think about what that's saying. It's not saying I am sorry for what I did because it was my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. Almost never do you see that anymore in, a, in any sort of a public apology for anything, especially amongst, you know, politicians and stuff like that. It's I'm sorry if you were hurt. What is that doing? It's putting the, the fault on the victim. It's your fault that you were hurt. It's your fault that you're so sensitive or, you know, you, you had that you were offended or hurt by what I did. The fault is yours. And I, I'm sorry that you have that fault. 
classic diabolical narcissism, the incapacity to take responsibility for anything, to be sorry for anything. Because remember, a diabolical narcissist is, is completely absorbed with the notion of his own superiority, elitism, et cetera, et cetera. He can do no wrong in his own mind. He can do no wrong. So all he can do when he issues an apology is say, I'm sorry that you're defective. I'm sorry if you were hurt. I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry that you are defective. I'm sorry uh, that you're not like me. I'm sorry that you're not like me. But then no one's like them. They, they are above everything. So I, I just, when I was making my notes, that, that really jumped out at me about uh, the confidier. And, you know, we're, we're beating our chest. A lot of people, um, you know, Novus Ordo Catholics, they say, oh, this, this is so terrible. These people in the church beating their chest. Yeah, because that is directly confronting the diabolical narcissist mindset. You're beating your own chest and you're, you're saying my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. So there is not an inch of diabolical narcissistic um uh, inverting and deflecting away. You have to own it. You have to own it yourself. And that, so, that word confidier, by the way, that translates from Latin to English as I confess. And it's, you're confess, confessing yes. your sins and it's a whole litany of to whom you're confessing. You're, you're, it, it's a prayer making a public uh, confession of, of your, your fault, basically. And you do right. this at the, at the very beginning of Mass uh, before, before any of the readings and then, of course, right before communion. The two times when you really should be doing it. Exactly. So, super nerd, I have a whole nother page of notes here, but I'm at a breaking point. So I propose what we do is we break on this topic right now, but then next week, in fact, we might even do a, another podcast like what next, get back on schedule and do one on either Tuesday or Thursday, and we'll just pick up where we left off here. And we have, we have some other things to discuss about this notion of, you know, conflating mercy with permissiveness, conflating charity with indifference. And we've got some really, really good quotes and citations for people who want to read what saints and doctors of the church have said directly about this. But there's so much of it. And looking at the clock now, I think that we should probably save that as a continuation for the next episode. I was just going to make a comment that uh, so much for a, a quick uh, reply to an email and yeah. uh, to, to the to the emailer so saying, hey, why don't you do entire, why don't you do some some episodes just answering emails? We just did. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, granted, this one's a little bit different. This this topic uh, need, needed some unpacking. And I think we're probably, like, like you said, I think I, we could we could continue on with this easily. And oh, yeah. uh, definitely making the case that, that uh, yes, you have to be sorry for your for your sins. And and um, Steve has a valid point, and and so yeah, it, it we're, we're fifty eight minutes into unpacking it, and and um, yeah, we could easily go on, and we we probably will. Yep. So let's do this. Let's um, let's break this episode here, and then let's make the commitment that we'll do another episode either Tuesday or Wednesday. We will finish out this topic, and then we have we're going to talk about something that um, people ask me why I don't talk about it so much anymore. And I'm actually going to answer that question. Um, we're going to talk about Islam again because it's kind of. 
there's been something in the news recently that ties it all kind of ties all these things together and it's not that i'm i'm no longer um interested in in exposing the islamic political system as the satanic fraud that it is and all that um the short answer to the question is because you know i think to a large extent amongst my audience you know my work is done. Almost everybody now realizes that Islam is a satanic political system. It's not a religion. I see people making comments about that all the time, that it's it's a bunch of, you know, ratification of sexual perversion. They're all inbred, um, that it's completely irrational, that there's there's no way that you can dialogue with it or, or have any sort of rational conversation with it. There's But there's more to discuss here in terms of current events. Um, but in short, um, I, I at this point, given my audience, I think the vast, vast majority of people that end up reading me or listening to the podcast, they already know the score on Islam. So I really don't need to beat that drum nearly as hard as I did six years ago. I mean, when I when I did my Koran burning in April of 2011, that was pre- pretty cutting edge. It was kind of cutting edge. A lot of people had never read the Quran in any way. They had no idea what this satanic uh, political manifesto actually said. And so six years ago, um, Quran burning and exposing uh, the surahs, that was all that was all fairly cutting edge. It, but in six years, I think most morally sane people in the West now know what the score is with Islam. So I don't feel like I need to spend lots and lots of time on it. But I do have a specific topic that I want to address early next week. So stay tuned for that. And as a general reminder, the Benefactor Masses are Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, if you're not listening to this today. And uh, if you have any questions that you'd, you'd like to have answered on the podcast or just suggestions for topics, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. And of course, on the website, you can place you can find the link for ordering the Diabolical Narcissism DVD. Those are still orders are still coming in a little more slower than than when they the, the <clears throat> when the link first went up, uh, but that's still available. Uh, any other parting ideas or thoughts for for this week? Um, um, we've had we got a confirmation from somebody in the central U.S. that two more masses for the conversion of the entire Trump family have been um, have been scheduled. So we don't have the dates and times for that yet, but we do know that two more masses are going to be said for the conversion of the entire Trump family. And um, oh, on a business note. Yes, absolutely. My cattle marketing DVD is still available, but ordering for that is completely different. You email me directly. Um, Super Nerd is handling the Diabolical Narcissism DVDs. The cattle marketing DVD, you still um, you still email me for that, and then I'll send you ordering instructions if you're if you're interested. So I think that's the only two items of housekeeping that I can think of for this week. Um. Aside from the fact that uh, those there, there are some folks who want to specifically support the podcast as, as opposed to you and, and your uh, website. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I, so I'm a web developer, or I do a lot of web stuff, and I haven't built a website yet <laughs> for for this yes, for this project, so. uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, I, I will get that that done soon, and and uh, there there will be some ways to uh, to donate to that. Uh, some conventional ways, and maybe some slightly unconventional ways, like uh, Bitcoin or something like that. We'll we'll find out. Well, and that's that will be a topic of um, a financial Friday someday. But as everyone can probably understand from my unique and delicate situation, uh, lifestyle situation as it is, it is very, very important to me that I keep that 
we keep these things segregated. So yes, super nerd is going to get with it and he's going to throw up a, a super nerd page and then he will throw up at some point a super nerd donation button. And remember guys, he's the one who's standing all the expense. And most importantly, what super nerd is doing is he's just dedicating enormous amounts of time to this enormous amounts of time. And he's a man with a full-time job and, and family commitments and so on and so forth. You know, I'm just kind of the, the time that I spend doing, this is literally the time that I'm physically speaking, doing the podcast and he does everything else. So at some point, and I hope it's soon, this shouldn't take too much. This shouldn't need to be any sort of a big elaborate sort of a website, but I hope super nerd gets a super nerd website up with a donation button. And then you all can, can make sure that he is compensated for the excellent work that he's doing there. And I don't want to put words in your mouth or, or blow any, bu- burst any bubbles, but you're kind of toying around with maybe doing another podcast that doesn't involve me and, and would be slightly different and have a kind of a different focus. Is that correct? Are you kind of still playing around with that idea? Um, a little more than just playing with it. Yeah. Lining up uh, guests and, and, and setting up uh, topics. It'll be more along the NPR Fresh Air series. It's not so much that I have anything to say that is of much interest. It's to find uh, interesting people to interview and have discussions with them. Oh, that would be awesome. And I think you do a great job. And uh, the feedback that comes in says Super Nerd is great. And I I wholeheartedly concur. I think that you have a whole second side career as a podcaster, Super Nerd. So. <laughs> I've got that to fall back on, I guess. <laughs> yep, yep. You got you got that going for you, which is nice. <laughs> okay, well, until next week, I'm a podcaster. Uh, I'm Super Nerd, and uh, we'll see you then. And, 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 and I'm oh. Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. I'm such a professional. I can't do the ex- <laughs> exit right. <laughs> <laughs>